All right. If you would find your way back to your seats, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This morning we actually are going through a thread sermon series where we preach one sermon from every book in the Bible. Find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians today. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge not only who's here, but who's not here. Do you know that we have 81 middle school and high school students that are at Summer Spectacular right now? Yeah, it's incredible. Plus leaders and like, yeah, I don't know if we have room for all of them. So that is awesome. I, you know, here's, here's my prayer for them this weekend. I have three of my own kids out there right now. My prayer is that this would be a turning point for many of them where they decide they're going to follow Jesus regardless of the cost. Where God does something in their heart where they actually start to provoke and challenge us. Where they're like, hey dad, Jesus says this, why aren't we doing it? Maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> but I just know that in middle school and high school, there, there's so many foundations that can be laid, and then you begin to get it. So I'm just praying that our kids would get it, and that they would provoke us and challenge us as well. So as I pray for us, let's also pray for them. Sound good? Yeah. All right, God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to open your word, to hear it, to understand it, to love it, and to be shaped by it. God, I pray for those 81 students right now that are gathering. I pray for John Reginald as he's speaking to them and Josh as he's organizing the whole thing and all the other leaders. God, would you give them incredible conversations? I pray that this would be the day in many of our high school and middle school students where they begin a relationship. Speak to us through me or in spite of me, but speak through your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's a brief intro video to 1 Thessalonians. The book of 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica around 50 AD. Paul writes as a dear friend to strengthen the church amidst persecution and remind them of the hope of Christ's return. Paul celebrates the strong faith of the Thessalonians recalling their conversion from worshiping Greek and Roman gods to the belief in the one true living God. He acknowledges the persecution they face by following Jesus, but reminds them of the unshakable hope they have in God's saving grace. Paul prays that God would continue to increase the church's already present love for each other and challenges them to live in line with the teachings of Jesus committing to holiness and sexual purity. Responding to questions about their future in heaven, Paul makes it clear that death cannot separate Christians from the love of Jesus. When he returns, he will call both the living and the dead to himself. This hope is given to motivate holy living in the present while focusing on the coming reality of Jesus' future kingdom. One of the great joys that we have as Christians is to live in such a world to show, or such a way to show the world a different way to live. A life that might appear odd at first, and yet it's compelling because it's a way of life that better fits in light of our design. Last week, Pastor Mike, I thought, preached a really good sermon from Colossians chapter 3 and how the gospel shapes and forms us as a people, how it produces in us a gospel culture that revolutionizes all of our relationships. 
how we relate to each other within the church and how we treat one another, how we relate to one another within the family, husbands and wives and parents and children, and, and then even give us a framework for work and economics and class, laying a foundation that essentially undermined the very institution of slavery, calling Christians to recognize the dignity and the value of every other image bearer of God. I was really encouraged by it, challenged by it, and provoked and inspired by it. And I, I just think Pastor Mike is such a gift to our church, isn't he? <laughs> like, I hope you guys know that, and I hope you tell him that. And in no way am I threatened when you tell me he's a good preacher. I know. He's an amazing preacher. And I think our church is better served for it. Today's passage in 1 Thessalonians 5 picks up on this same theme of gospel culture, and it, and it continues to advance it. Uh, think of today's message as gospel culture part two, only in 1 Thessalonians it speaks to different areas of life than the ones in Colossians. How we interact with our leaders and those who are in authority over us. How we keep peace with one another in the midst of a broken and conflict-ridden world. How we um, relate to God, and more specifically, how we relate to the Holy Spirit and his presence and work in our life. So we're going to read it together, and um, 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 12, I was greatly encouraged by it this week. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Did you catch that last part? How it ends? It ends not with gospel command, but with gospel hope. After giving all of these rapid-fire staccato commands, do this, do this, do this, do this, this is how you live, it ends with this encouragement. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. So the key to obeying and understanding all of these commands is to first and foremost realize that it is God who does this very work in us. It's not our power. It's not our toughness. It's not our grit and strength that, that gets us to the finish line. It's God's Holy Spirit. God himself is going to do the work of sanctifying you, making you holy, making you more and more like Jesus Christ, taking on his character. 
And not just partially, but completely. Your whole spirit and soul and body is, is, is happening. And when is this going to take place? It happens at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's just gotten done in chapter 4 reminding them that Jesus will return and that that event will change everything in, human, in humanity. But he encourages us here that we don't have to wait to begin this total transformation until then. He has started it in his people now. And it reminds us at the end with this just great promise, he who calls you is faithful. Because God, when he makes a promise, he delivers. He does. When he promises something, he is all-powerful and good and faithful. He will do it. And so these gospel commands are rooted in the gospel promises of God to do his work in us. And therefore, in light of that, we have hope that they will happen. See, guys, it is really important as a church that we believe the truth and we have gospel doctrine, that we teach the scriptures rightly. But it is also equally important that there is a gospel culture in our midst that actually reflects the truth we say we believe. It's not an either-or proposition. It's not get the truth, but then live however you want. It's not live godly, but then believe whatever you want. Actually, it's the truths produce a kind of culture in us, a gospel culture that God does and that it matters very deeply. So what kind of culture, then, does the gospel produce? There are five elements in this gospel culture that we see in 1 Thessalonians 5. There's more things than just this, but this passage, I think, highlights five of them. The first is a culture of honor or respect toward our leaders, verses 12 and 13. Second, a culture of peace amongst each other, verse 13b and 15. Third, a culture of nuance in our care for one another, verse 14. Four, a culture of joy and prayer and gratitude. We see that in verses 16 to 18. And then fifth, a culture of openness and discernment to the Holy Spirit's work in our midst. We see that in verses 19 to 22. So when we embrace Jesus' countercultural rule and reign, it makes us primarily citizens of another kingdom. And even though the, that kingdom will come fully in the future and is yet to be realized, we have an incredible opportunity right now to get in line with Jesus' rule and reign, to live that out. And when we do, we not only experience in part the blessing and the freedom that comes with God's rule and reign being present in his people, but we also give the watching world a glimpse of what is to come. And they should be attracted by that. So... Let's be honest, we do that imperfectly, don't we? As individuals, and then corporately together, we have high, lofty ideals, but we do that imperfectly. You and I are not what we should be yet. And we, together, are not what we all ought to be yet. And so I always tell people, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it, because you'll screw it up, okay? That means that, that we actually have to have grace for one another as we seek to live out these ideals. But just as we are not the finished version of ourselves individually, so we are not the finished version of who we will be as a church. So let's have some grace for each other, okay? All right, let's look at each of these elements of gospel culture. First, a culture of honor. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly because of their work. 
As Christians, we're called to treat those in authority over us differently than the world treats authority. Now, this is speaking specifically to the leaders in the church. We read, it's those who labor among you, so they're Christians. They work with us, they're sheep as well. They are over you. They're exercising authority in a Christ-like way over you. They're leading the church. And, and one of the ways that they do that is by admonishing you. To admonish is to warn or to give encouragement or to rebuke or correct people. Now, it's part of our nature since those horrible events of the garden thousands of years ago, to reject any and all authority over us. To seek to be an authority unto ourselves. No one can tell me what to do. I'm truly in control of things, right? And, and even us as Americans, it's even more deeply ingrained in us, right? Life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We the people rising up and throwing off tyranny, right? There's this idea that we are to rebel against any authority and, and seek to establish our own, to be in control of our own destiny and in control of our own lives. And there's an inherent skepticism in all of us about any and all authority, isn't there? In some ways, that's a, a right skepticism because so many of the people that we see in human history and even in our lives use that authority to exploit and to harm rather than to protect and serve. But then when we pick up the Bible and they tell us that we are to honor and to respect those in authority over us, it strikes us, doesn't it? It challenges us. And we think, yeah, but if you knew. Uh, no, we're not giving respect. We're not giving honor. But what makes gospel culture different, unique even, even, is to respect and to esteem very highly in love. That means to honor those in authority over us because of the work that they do. Now here's the thing. Leadership in any sphere is hard. And the last few years have been not particularly kind to any leader in any sphere, right? Gospel leadership is even harder. To put the needs of others ahead of your own, to pour out your life and to serve so that those in your care flourish and thrive, especially when they start grumbling and rebelling and, and criticizing, that's hard to do. If you want to live counterculturally right now, treat those who lead you with respect and honor. Esteem them highly rather than constantly second-guess them and tear them down. Now, I know this is specifically geared toward those in the church, and so you're probably like, Pastor Kyle, this is pretty self-serving, don't you think? <laughs> yes, but I'm not the sole leader here. But let me just say, it's hard to lead anything right now. People don't have a lot of respect for the challenges and the nuances of leadership. Like, everything in the last few years has gotten turned on its head. Every industry, every vocation has gotten harder. And our level of trust in our leaders has gotten minuscule. Now, I get it. I understand why. Like, all you have to do is open a web browser and some political leader or religious leader or celebrity or business leader has some scandal, some way in which they've abused people or been narcissistic with power and authority, and, and we don't have to look far at all, and we're like, I get it. No one's to be trusted. 
right? That seems like the default. And yet, here it says, honor and respect and esteem highly those who are in leadership over you. Now, we have to understand that Christian leadership is different. Christian authority is different than the world's authority. Jesus came, and even though he had all authority, he flipped greatness and leadership on its head. He said that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over people, but it will not be so with you. Rather, anybody who wants to be truly great must see himself as first and foremost a servant and pour his life out for others because true greatness is found in that. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus subverts this idea of authority and leadership. And he says, if you want to do it in a truly great way, be a servant leader, a self-sacrificial leader. And he not only taught that, but he lived it to the nth degree, didn't he? Pouring out his life for undeserving, rebellious people like you and like me. And he says, that's what Christian leadership looks like. That's how he taught and trained his disciples. And that's what they seek to embody here. And so here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul doesn't address leaders like he often does. He actually addresses followers. And he says, don't make it too hard on them. Don't exasperate your leaders, but treat them with honor and respect. Those who labor on your behalf and those who admonish you, which means also brings correction into your life. So, how are we doing at that? Can I just shoot straight with you guys? The Barna Group did a a research survey among full-time ministry leaders at the end of 2021. So, like at at the tail end of the pandemic when we were all afraid, okay, And the question they asked was this, have you given real serious consideration to quitting being in full-time ministry within the last year? Do you know what percentage of pastors said yes? 38%. That's two out of five. Can you imagine the hurt that the church of Jesus Christ would be in if two out of five pastors quit? And it said seriously considered quitting and doing something else with your life. Now, here's the thing. The pandemic was hard on all of us. No industry was immune from it. It, it, it really changed the world fundamentally, and we're still trying to figure out where exactly is up. But why is it that two out of five pastors considered quitting? I think that's a very nuanced answer, but at the very least, I think we can say the people of God have a lot of room to grow in this particular area, don't we? Of having cultures of honor and respect and esteeming people highly. I get that the world uses authority differently, but the problem isn't authority, it's what you do with it, right? Some of the most powerful things in the world can be used for great evil or for great good, and leadership and authority is no different. You can, do it, you can use it for great harm, or you can use it to create an environment for people to flourish and thrive. And for those who labor among you, church, don't make the job more difficult than it already is. Esteem highly those who lead well. And you want to be countercultural at work? You want to show that you belong to a different kingdom? Be one of the easiest people to lead. Be a cheerleader for your, for your leaders and those in authority over you. Now, I'm not saying be a lemming or just a doormat and lay down blindly and not actually share what you think. But don't be someone who's so stinking hard to lead all the time. Don't always be known for a critical spirit or pointing something out, but be someone who's just an encourager of those above you. 
Awesome. I understand that you have a really hard job right now. I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Or thank you for, for doing all of this work so that we can just go about our job. That is probably something they don't get very often at all. So a gospel culture is one of honor and respect. But we also see, second, that it's a culture of peace. Verses 13 at the end and verse 15, we're told, be at peace among yourselves. And then verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Verse 22 says, abstain from every form of evil. In his most famous sermon, Jesus said at the beginning, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Called sons of God means to take on the very character and nature of God himself who is a peacemaker. And so those who seek to live peacefully, those who seek to be peacemakers and peace sustainers actually reflect the very character and nature of God himself. Now that's a lofty ideal to ascribe to, especially when you got to live with flesh and blood people who let you down who are imperfect just like you. It means then that in order to keep the peace, we actually have to extend forgiveness to one another. We have to restrain the desire in us to hit back those who hit us and not repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good and kindness. Now this repaying evil for evil can be physical violence, it can be words of violence or destructive words, or as we've perfected in northern Minnesota, it can be a cool indifference that simply seeks to distance ourselves from you. Not dealing with conflict, just slowly writing you off. But Jesus took relationships and peace and unity seriously. So much so that he said it actually should affect your worship. In the same sermon, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, said, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So something that should define our culture is that we are peacemaking, peace-seeking people. Not that we let people walk all over us or continue to abuse us, but people who forgive one another and seek to respond to evil with good and kindness. Third, We are a culture of nuance. When we care for one another, the same type of care is not always the best response. Let me read verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. There are some who think that verse 14 speaks to the leaders, as if verses 12 and 13 speak to the followers and how they should treat the leaders and honor their leaders. And now verse 14 kind of qualifies that and says, and leaders, this is how you should care for people in your charge, that you should lead with a sense of nuance. And yet the same word, brothers, is used in both verse 12 and verse 14. Now to be sure, leaders oversee and care for people, but if you think about the church, All of us care for and oversee and minister to people. We have all been given the Holy Spirit. We've all been tasked to care for and to encourage and to minister to one another. And so when it says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, it means that the way that you care for people should be nuanced depending on where they're at. 
should be nuanced depending upon the condition of their heart, and you should give them the kind of care that they need, not just a one-size-fits-all, hit them with the truth. Okay? We see that. Admonish the idle, those who are belligerent, those who are idle, those who are hard-hearted. The proper ministry approach toward them is to go right at them to admonish them, to rebuke them, to speak the truth to their hard-heartedness, to not pander to them or, or, or drop hints, but go right after the problem head on. He does this as an example in the second letter of the Thessalonians when he writes to those who've kind of quit their jobs, stopped working, and are just waiting for Jesus to come back, living off the rest of the church. He says, if anyone doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Yes, we are waiting for the return of Jesus. It hasn't happened yet. And yet, be productive in the meantime. Don't mooch off everybody else. If that's your approach, then you shouldn't eat. Ooh, that's harsh. Yes, but they're idle, they're belligerent, they're lazy, and he goes right after them. However, he says, encourage or exhort the faint-hearted, the timid. Sometimes there are those who are lacking courage. They are discouraged. They are deeply, like, afraid. And he says not to rebuke them or to admonish them, but rather to encourage them, to exhort them, to call them into what they are supposed to be. Now, I would bet that there are very few people in this world that are over-encouraged. Most of us suffer from a lack of encouragement. And so to go alongside someone who's discouraged and say, brother, sister, this is who we are. Let's go do that. I see this in you, and I see your vital contribution missing. We need that. Or you are, you're, you're timid and you're afraid. Don't be. Do you know who's on your side? The God of this universe. Or maybe someone who is just discouraged and depressed to come alongside and say, brother, sister, I see this in you. You matter, and I love you. And I want you to understand the truth of who you are in Christ. Encourage the faint-hearted. Admonish the idle. Help the weak. Sometimes you're just so beaten down that you don't or you can't respond to encouragement. So what Paul says is, help them out. Help them out. The weak, the sick, maybe the person that's so depressed that they can't even respond to another person's encouragement what does he say? Not beat them over the head with a Bible. Help them out. Bring them a meal. Sit with them. Encourage them. Just be there for them. Help them through that season and that time and help out practically. When a mom's just had a baby and battling deeply postpartum depression, you can do it is not always the most helpful. Sometimes you go and watch your other kids. Let her take a nap. Bring a meal by. Sometimes people get so depressed and discouraged that they just need you to sit with them and pull them out. Just help them. Just take them somewhere. Just practically respond to their needs. And finally, after these three different scenarios, he says, be patient with them all because, dang it, we need patience. Now, what happens when you admonish the weak? You crush their soul. What about if you encourage or help the idle? They further take advantage of you. What this is saying is that our ministry one to another requires nuance. 
And to do that, you need to actually know and figure out and understand where a person's at so that you can care for them because the ministry required might be different. One of the things that distinguishes us as a community of people, as a culture, is that we don't have a one-size-fits-all approach to ministry because we're all in different spots. Rather, the golden rule, do unto others what you would have them do to you, or you to project yourself into that setting, that situation, and say, what does love require of me here? And sometimes it means speaking the truth. And sometimes it means just lending a helping hand. When it comes to the ministry of care for other people, it is more art than science. So we're called to be a people of nuance. We're called to be a people of honor and respect, a people of peace. we got two more. The fourth one is a culture of joy, prayer, and gratitude. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Often we, we, we give ourselves to the task of asking, what is God's will for my life? This is. Right here. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. I can promise you that is God's will for your life. Now, I simultaneously love these verses and also find myself really challenged by these verses. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. How in the world am I going to do that? Well, it really comes down to perspective and understanding how God feels about us, isn't it? The reason that I can rejoice always is because I know the end of the story and I know God's heart toward me. When Jesus returns, he will prevail and there is nothing that we can do to stop God's kingdom from advancing. And even though things might look bleak now, I know that I am loved by God through Jesus and I know that the work that he is doing will work everything out in my life in due time. And so even the hard things I can rejoice in because what they are producing in me over the long haul. I can give thanks in all of my circumstancing stances knowing that it is God's will for my life to do so. Now there's recently been so many different studies done on the power of gratitude on your mental health. Did you know that? And almost every single study, let me summarize them all. Gratitude is good for you. It's one of the best things that you can do to improve your mental health is to practice Gratitude. Now, I always love when the Bible that was written 2,000 years ago in its ancient wisdom says exactly what modern studies are saying today. That it is God's will for you, your life to give thanks in all circumstances, and that's one of the healthiest, healthy, healthiest things you can do, especially if you battle anything with mental health. But what about prayer without ceasing? I mean, sometimes it's a struggle to pray for five minutes, Right? pray without ceasing. Does that mean that we never get to say, in Jesus' name, amen? What does it mean to pray without ceasing? Think about it this way. What does it look like for you to have a constant conversation with God throughout the day? To turn all of your self-talk, not into self-talk, but into prayer. Where we speak to God about what's going on and where we listen to God and listen to the prompting of the Spirit of what He might actually have for us in any given moment. That is living by the Spirit of God, constantly talking to Him and listening to Him throughout the day. In the 17th century, there was a, a Carmelite friar by the name of Brother Lawrence, and he wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence of God, and I would commend it to you. 
He was a monk, and so he spent his day trying to practice God's presence in all of the things that he did. Here's a brief quote from this work that's, that's now spanned 300 years, and people are still reading it. He, being God, does not ask much of us, merely a thought of him from time to time, a little act of adoration, sometimes to ask for his grace, sometimes to offer him your sufferings, at other times to thank him for his graces past and present. He has bestowed on you in the midst of your troubles to take solace in him as often as you can. Lift up your heart to him during your meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. One need not cry out very loudly. He is nearer to us than we think. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Finally, the last piece of the culture, the culture of openness and discernment to the Holy Spirit's work. We see this in verse 19 to 22. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let me just touch on this because I think it's important, but realize that the spiritual gift of prophecy in the New Testament is probably a longer conversation. And if you are wanting to learn more about this, I just want to commend to you, I'm going to be teaching a two-hour seminar on this very topic, uh, a naturally supernatural life, on September 15th. It's a Friday night. Come for two hours where we'll dig into this deeper. You can register for that online or just send me an email and I'll make sure that you come. Or you can just come. Let me give you the basics of what I think it's saying here because I think as a church, this is an area we need to grow in. Not just as individuals, but as a church where we ought to be aware of the Holy Spirit's work in our life and while we're to be discerning about it, we need to seek it genuinely and be open to it. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecy, but test everything. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit that empowers all of the rest of your life speaks to us throughout the day. He lays things on our heart. He brings things to mind. He sometimes reveals to us even what's going on in someone else's life so that we might be a means of encouragement to them. He says that work of the Spirit, that speaking of the Spirit, don't despise that. Don't quench that in your life, but be discerning about it. Now, I would venture to guess that the Holy Spirit speaks to you a lot more than you might initially think. He puts people on your mind throughout the day. He brings to your awareness something that might encourage another person. I bet that every time, if you did this, if every time God had laid someone on your heart, you called them or you texted them, you would realize that the Spirit is actually doing something that you're not always aware of. Hey, I'm praying for you. The Lord put me on your heart. How you doing? I felt led to, to pray for this. And more often than not, they're like, oh my goodness, that's exactly what I was concerned with. You will see the Holy Spirit at work in your life, and they will be made aware of the imminence of God who knows them and cares deeply for them. And that happens differently than just a personal encounter with God. That's good and that's amazing. But when God sends your mail to someone else so that they can pray for you and they can encourage you, it's amazing how you realize, wait a second, this is real. 
This is not some like fairy tale thing that we're talking about in church, but God actually cares and he's speaking and he reveals things to people that they wouldn't know otherwise. That's an exciting God to know and an exciting God to follow and that makes the community of faith more vibrant and exciting. See, the gift of prophecy in the New Testament is not primarily predictive in nature, but rather meant to encourage believers in the truth and the presence of God in everyday life. Maybe it's something they need to hear. Maybe it's something from their past that God wants to set them free from. Maybe it's something that they're already seeking the Lord about. And here's how we grow in this gifting. We recognize that the New Testament gift of prophecy is different than the Old Testament role of a prophet. Thank the Lord we're not going to stone anybody, okay? We're not giving revelation to people that needs to be written down in Scripture. We're not telling them, please don't say, thus says the Lord to anybody else, okay? As if we have more authority than we actually have. I think that's what taking the Lord's name in vain in a lot of ways is about. It's claiming the authority of God in areas that God didn't say. And a lot of times with this gift of prophecy, we step out, we venture out way more authority than we've been given. And we say, thus says the Lord, and we should not do that. No, rather, we would say things like, hey, I felt led to share this with you. Does this mean anything to you? Because what we're inviting is not thus says the Lord, but rather, I think God might have something for you, but would you test it? Would you be discerning about it? Hey, when, when I was praying for you, this passage of Scripture came to my mind. Do you mind if I share it with you? Hey, I just, I felt led to share this with you. I hope it lands. It might not. Because do you see, when, when we're operating like this, do you see both the danger and the beauty of this gifting? Yeah? Some of you guys are like, oh, Kyle, I could tell you story after story. The danger is that if we are not acting when the Spirit prompts us, if we're making things up, it is so manipulative. Right? If we don't actually get a sense from the Lord about something, but attribute to him anyway, that can actually chip away at and destroy people's faith and trust in God. When we use our own intuition rather than what the Spirit is saying, we might actually be incredibly wrong about some things and actually wound people and tear down their faith rather than building them up. Or... Some might even use this perceived gifting of God as a way of manipulating other people and putting themselves forward as spiritual leaders more connected to God than they are. There's a reason that we are told to test everything, to be discerning. But sometimes in our discernment, I think we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater and we're so scared of people manipulating or, or doing these things that we don't actually listen or we don't actually think that God speaks like that anymore. But there's such a positive gift and joy of knowing the imminence of God in our daily lives that we can't get rid of this gifting. So if we're going to do this in a way that's helpful, here's a few guiding principles. I'll explain more if you want to come. Feel free to register for that if you'd like. September 15th. When exercising and operating in this gift, don't say, thus says the Lord, but rather, hey, test this. I think the, the, the gap between those who are charismatic in nature and, and those who maybe are a little bit more cessationist in na nature, meaning that they think this gift is probably uh, to be treated, that it's dangerous, that we shouldn't do that. This isn't the normal operating way that the Spirit works in God's people. I think we would bridge a lot of those gaps if we stopped saying, thus says the Lord. And more said, hey, I think this is something that might be for you. Test this, discern this.
Second, realize that this gifting in the New Testament is something that people have to grow into just like every other gifting, and you're not going to get everything right right away. Now, we don't want to manipulate people. We don't want to say, thus says the Lord when God didn't say. But every other gift that we see and we recognize in people, we help them grow and develop in it. We coach them along the way. I have the gift of preaching. My first sermon was terrible. It was awful. I'm glad that you didn't have to listen to it. I really am. I had the gifting, but I needed some coaching, some development, some growth, right? And all of us do in in our different giftings, right? Even the gift of help, the gift of serving. Like sometimes your kids want to help. You're like, I want to help. And you're like, that's not helpful at all. It's like it took a half-hour job and made it two hours, right? And yet you do it. Why? Because you want to you fan that into flame in their heart. You want them to be servants. You want them to be helpful, and you want to teach them the skills that they're going to need along the way. In the same way, we recognize spiritual gifting in people, but we develop it in them, and this should be no different, which is why we need to both believe that it happens and also be discerning about it. Third, If this is an area that you may be gifted in, you need to commit to never speak on behalf of God when you don't feel like God is actually speaking. Second, or second, fourth, here we go. Understand that the Holy Spirit is never going to say anything that's contrary to what he's already said in Scripture. That's the highest authority. It is. And he's not going to contradict himself. And so if you get a leading from God, a sense from God, and it goes directly opposed to what God's already said, I can guarantee you it didn't come from God. We need to be a little bit more discerning. We need to learn how those those senses come about. We need to, you know what I'm saying? All right, fifth. In light of these things, we should be open, desiring, and seeking to grow in these giftings because God has a lot of things that he wants us to know. He has a lot of people that need encouraging. A lot of people that right now are wondering, God, do you even care? That, that if he sent them, or if he sent you their mail, and you just said, hey, is this, is this going on right now? I just felt led to pray for you or to encourage you with this. They would realize in a really powerful way, oh, God cares. He really cares. Paul closes with this encouragement, and I read it at the beginning. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Guys, God has called us as his people to be different, to not only believe gospel truth, but to live out a gospel-saturated culture, to reflect his character and his heart in how we interact with one another to a watching world. That means that we do authority differently. We seek peace with one another wholeheartedly. We minister to one another with a sense of nuance. We are characterized by love and joy and gratitude and prayer, and we are open and discerning of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. It really comes down to this. Love one another. Jesus said to his disciples as he's teaching about his kingdom and its subversive nature, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. At this point, the Bible people are like, "Uh, Jesus, that's not really a new command. The Old Testament's filled with that. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
So Jesus is saying, now my love for you is the standard by which you'll be judged. Now my self-sacrificial giving love that puts the needs of others ahead of my own is now the standard for what it means to truly love people. And then he says this in verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is giving the outside world the ability to assess whether or not we are actually his disciples. How? The way in which we love each other. What a high and holy calling that is, guys. And yet there's something also so deeply attractive about it, isn't it? Something that that just draws you in and makes you long to live amongst the people that operate and love each other like that. And it has the same effect on unbelievers. They may not believe what we believe. They may think we're crazy in some ways. And yet there is a longing deep within them to be loved like that. To be among a community that accepts them and encourages them and makes and, and calls them to be who God has called them to be like that. Church, this is our calling. This is the culture that we get to lean into. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for how it provokes us and challenges us and encourages us and shapes us. Would you do that in our midst now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.